This is part three and four of Christian Science and the Book of Mrs. Eddy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg and Other Stories by Mark Twain. Section eight, part three and four of Christian Science and the Book of Mrs. Eddy. Under the powerful influence of the near treatment and the absent treatment together, my bones were gradually retreating inward and disappearing from view. The good word took a brisk start now, and went on quite swiftly. My body was diligently straining and stretching, this way and that, to accommodate the processes of restoration, and every minute or two I heard a dull click inside and knew that the two ends of a fracture had been successfully joined. This muffled clicking and gritting and grinding and rasping continued during the next three hours, and then stopped. The connections had all been made, all except dislocations. There were only seven of these—hips, shoulders, knees, neck—so that was soon over. One after another they slipped into their sockets with a sound like pulling a distant cork and I jumped up as good as new, as to framework, and sent for the horse-doctor. I was obliged to do this because I had a stomach-ache and a cold in the head, and I was not willing to trust these things any longer in the hands of a woman who I did not know, and in whose ability to successfully treat mere disease I had lost all confidence. My position was justified by the fact that the cold and the ache had been in her charge from the first, along with the fractures but had experienced not a shade of relief. And indeed the ache was even growing worse and worse, and more and more bitter now, probably on account of the protracted abstention from food and drink. The horse-doctor came, a pleasant man, and full of hope and professional interest in the case. In the matter of smell he was pretty aromatic, in fact quite horsey, and I tried to arrange with him for absent treatment, but it was not in his line so, out of delicacy, I did not press it. He looked at my teeth, and examined my hock, and said my age and general condition were favorable to energetic measures. Therefore he would give me something to turn the stomach-ache into the bots, and the cold in the head into the blind staggers. Then he should be on his own beat, and would know what to do. He made up a bucket of bran-mash said a dipperful of it every two hours, alternated with a drench with turpentine and axle-grease in it, would either knock my ailments out of me in twenty-four hours, or so interest me in other ways as to make me forget they were on the premises. He administered my first dose himself, then took his leave, saying I was free to eat and drink anything I pleased, and in any quantity I liked, but I was not hungry any more, and did not care for food. I took up the Christian Scientist book and read half of it, then took a dipperful of drench and read the other half. The resulting experiences were full of interest and adventure. All through the rumblings and grindings and quakings and effervescings accompanying the evolution of the ache into the bots and the cold into the blind staggers, I could note the generous struggle for mastery going on between the mash and the drench and the literature and often I could tell which was ahead, and could easily distinguish the literature from the others when the others were separate, though not when they were mixed. For when a bran-mash and an eclectic drench are mixed together, they look just like the apodictical principle out on a lark, and no one can tell it from that. 
the finish was reached at last the evolutions were complete and a fine success but i think that this result could have been achieved with fewer materials i believe the mash was necessary to the conversion of the stomach-ache into the bots but i think one could develop the blind staggers out of the literature by itself also that blind staggers produced in this way would be of a better quality and more lasting than any produced by the artificial processes of a horse-doctor for of all the strange and frantic and incomprehensible and uninterpretable books which the imagination of man has created surely this one is the prize sample it is written with a limitless confidence and complacency and with a dash and stir and earnestness which often compel the effects of eloquence even when the words do not seem to have any traceable meaning there are plenty of people who imagine they understand the book i know this for i have talked with them but in all cases they were people who also imagined that there were no such things as pain sickness and death and no realities in the world nothing actually existent but mind it seems to me to modify the value of their testimony when these people talk about christian science they do as mrs fuller did they do not use their own language but the books they pour out the book's showy incoherences and leave you to find out later that they were not originating but merely quoting they seem to know the volume by heart and to revere it as they would a bible another bible perhaps i ought to say plainly the book was written under the mental desolations of the third degree and i feel sure that none but the membership of that degree can discover meanings in it when you read it you seem to be listening to a lively and aggressive and oracular speech delivered in an unknown tongue a speech whose spirit you get not the particulars or to change the figure you seem to be listening to a vigorous instrument which is making a noise it thinks is a tune but which to persons not members of the band is only the martial tooting of a trombone and merely stirs the soul through the noise but does not convey a meaning the book's serenities of self-satisfaction do almost seem to smack of a heavenly origin they have no blood kin in the earth it is more than human to be so placidly certain about things and so finely superior and so airily content with one's performance without ever presenting anything which may rightfully be called by the strong name of evidence and sometimes without even mentioning a reason for a deduction at all it thunders out the startling words i have proved so and so it takes the pope and all the great guns of his church in battery assembled to authoritatively settle and establish the meaning of a sole and single unclarified passage of scripture and this at vast cost of time and study and reflection but the author of this book is superior to all that she finds the whole bible in an unclarified condition and at small expense of time and no expense of mental effort she clarifies it from lid to lid reorganizes and improves the meanings then authoritatively settles and establishes them with formulae which you cannot tell from let there be light and here you have it it is the first time since the dawn days of creation that a voice has gone crashing through space with such placid and complacent confidence and command end of part three part four a word upon a question of authorship not that quite but rather a question of emendation and revision 
We know that the Bible Annex was not written by Mrs. Eddy, but was handed down to her eighteen hundred years ago by the Angel of the Apocalypse. But did she translate alone, or did she have help? There seems to be evidence that she had help, for there are four several copyrights on it—1875, 1885, 1890, and 1894. It did not come down in English, for in that language it could not have acquired copyright. There were no copyright laws eighteen centuries ago, and in my opinion no English language, at least up there. This makes it substantially certain that the Annex is a translation. Then was not the first translation complete? If it was, on what grounds were the later copyrights granted? I surmise that the first translation was poor, and that a friend or friends of Mrs. Eddy mended its English three times, and finally got it into its present shape, where the grammar is plenty good enough, and the sentences are smooth and plausible, though they do not mean anything. I think I am right in this surmise, for Mrs. Eddy cannot write English to-day, and this is argument that she never could. I am not able to guess who did the mending, but I think it was not done by any member of the Eddy Trust, nor by the editors of the Christian Science Journal, for their English is not much better than Mrs. Eddy's. However, as to the main point, it is certain that Mrs. Eddy did not doctor the Annex's English herself. Her original, spontaneous, undoctored English furnishes ample proof of this. Here are samples from recent articles from her unappeasable pen. Double-columned with them are a couple of passages from the Annex. It will be seen that they throw light. The italics are mine. 1. What plague-spot or bacilli were sick, gnawing sick, at the heart of this metropolis, and bringing it on bended knee? Why, it was an institute that had entered its vitals sick, that, among other things, taught games, etc. Page 670, C.S. Journal. Article entitled, A Narrative by Mary Baker G. Eddy. 2. Parks sprang up, sick. Electric streetcars run, sick, merrily through several streets. Concrete sidewalks and macadamized roads dotted, sick, the place, etc. Ibid. 3. Shorn, sick. Of its suburbs, it had indeed little left to admire, save to, sick, such as fancy, a skeleton above ground breathing, sick, slowly through a barren, sick, breast. Ibid. Therefore, the efficient remedy is to destroy the patient's unfortunate belief by both silently and audibly arguing the opposite facts in regard to harmonious being representing man as healthful instead of diseased, and showing that it is impossible for matter to suffer, to feel pain or heat, to be thirsty or sick. Page 375, Annex. Man is never sick, for mind is not sick, and matter cannot be. A false belief is both the tempter and the tempted, the sin and the sinner, the disease and its cause. It is well to be calm in sickness. To be hopeful is still better. But to understand that sickness is not real, and that truth can destroy it, is best of all, for it is the universal and perfect remedy. Chapter 12. Annex. You notice the contrast between the smooth, plausible, elegant, addled English of the doctored Annex, 
and the lumbering, ragged, ignorant output of the translator's natural, spontaneous, and unmedicated penwork. The English of the Annex has been slicked up by a very industrious and painstaking hand, but it was not Mrs. Eddy's. If Mrs. Eddy really wrote or translated the Annex, her original draft was exactly in harmony with the English of her plague-spot or bacilli, which were gnawing at the insides of the metropolis and bringing its heart on bended knee, thus exposing to the eye the rest of the skeleton breathing slowly through a barren breast. And it bore little or no resemblance to the book as we have it now, now that the salaried polisher has wholly stoned all of the genuine eddy-tees out of it. Will the plague-spot article go into a volume just as it stands? I think not. I think the polisher will take off his coat and vest and cravat, and demonstrate over it a couple of weeks, and sweat it into a shape something like the following. And then Mrs. Eddy will publish it, and leave people to believe that she did the polishing herself. One, what injury's influence was it that was affecting the city's morals? It was a social club which propagated an interest in idle amusements, disseminating a knowledge of games, etc. Two, by the magic of the new and nobler influence, the sterile spaces were transformed into wooded parks. The merry electric car replaced the melancholy bus, smooth concrete the tempestuous plank sidewalk, the macadamized road the primitive corduroy, etc. 3. Its pleasant suburbs gone, there was little left to admire save the wrecked graveyard with its uncanny exposures. The annex contains one sole and solitary humorous remark. There is a most elaborate and voluminous index, and it is preceded by this note. This index will enable the student to find any thought or idea contained in the book. End of part four of Christian Science and the Book of Mrs. Eddy. And end of section eight of The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg and Other Stories by Mark Twain.